Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Hey guys and gals, welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast brought to you by Arrowhead Land Company. Here you will be educated, entertained, and equipped to get more out of your outdoor experience. So hold on tight because here we go. What's up, folks? Welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast. I am your host, John Hutspeth, and we have a jam-packed show for you guys this week. And so I don't want to waste too much time here at the beginning, but all I'm going to say is we have a lot of stuff to cover here in the intro, and then we have a nice long interview that I am very excited about. I had a great time recording it. And so we're just going to dive right in. And the first order of business that I need to take care of is that it was brought to my attention that I might have misled you guys a little bit. Um, I think it was two weeks ago when I did my um, my season overview, kind of all the states I was going to be hunting and dates and stuff like that. And I'll be honest, I, I did that entire episode without actually like pulling up the regulations and looking at the dates. And so I come to find out I was basically a week off on a lot of things because just the way the calendar fell this year, uh, a lot of the seasons have kind of like been pushed back a little bit. And so I just want to go through here and clarify any mistakes that I might have gotten out there. And so we're going to go over the season dates real quick just to make sure everybody's on the same page. So deer archery has not changed October 1st, January 15th. Youth gun is a little bit later than normal. At least I felt so. It is October 20th to the 22nd. And then the one that really caught me off guard was deer muzzleloader. Um, I, I think I might have said that the October, the weekend of October 28th was the last weekend. Come to find out this year, that is actually the opening weekend of muzzleloader. And so this year, muzzleloader goes from October 28th to November 5th. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more here in just a second. You got deer gun from November 18th to December 3rd. And then for the places where it applies, you got the holiday antlerless, holiday antlerless deer gun from December 18th to December 31st. And so, like I said, the one that kind of threw me was that muzzleloader season. I'm just used to it always being that last week. And so, again, without checking the regulations, I just kind of thought it was falling a little early. And I think I even complained about on that episode about it being a little earlier, but knowing what I know now, um, if you guys follow me on Instagram, I think, uh, I don't know when it was last week, I said that I'd be making kind of a, a bold prediction. I've been listening to a, co- a lot of college fo- football podcasts, and they're all about the bold predictions before the season starts. So I have a bold prediction for this year, and I think there is a very, very good chance that the state record muzzleloader buck gets broken this year. I'm not even sure what the muzzleloader record is. Um, All I know is that with the spring rains we had this year, I am seeing just some 
some really, really good antler growth, um, like I've never seen before. I, I have a few bucks that I recognize from previous years, and they have packed on the inches. I got uh, two or three, like three to four-year-old bucks that are extremely tempting uh, because it is, it's just been a really good antler year. Like I said, we haven't had a ton of rain. I think we're still actually behind on annual precipitation, but just when those rains came, um, just like I said, just the timing of them, the spacing between them, it's just been a really good antler year. So you take that and then you take the muzzleloaders a little later this year, starting October 28th. You know, I love what's normally the last weekend kind of falls right around Halloween and that's like one of my favorite weekends to hunt. So you take the fact that it starts on the 28th and then goes through the first five days of November like that's that's just a perfect combination and so great antler growth timing of the season i think there's a very good chance that this is going to be a a record setting year for muzzleloader season that being said how that kind of affects my plan is my plan was to hunt that uh that weekend of the 28th with my muzzleloader and then that next weekend you know, leave like Friday, I think Friday would have been the 3rd, something like that, November 3rd, I was going to head to Iowa and be in Iowa for that first full week of November. Ah, man, like, <laughs> I want to give Iowa the precedence. I know I need to. I've been putting in for this tag for a, a long time. But, man, being able to to hunt with a muzzleloader those first couple days of November extremely tempting um and i just like i don't think i could if i'm if i'm going to be gone that whole first week uh you know from work in iowa and, and away from my family i don't think i could also take off you know like wednesday thursday friday leading up to it and so more than likely my plan is not going to change i'm probably still going to go hunt what is now the opening weekend of muzzleloader season uh you know that weekend of the 28th go back to work that week, which is just going to kill me. <laughs> and then, and then that Friday or Saturday, whatever, head to Iowa. And so again, I just wanted to clarify that in case you guys were like me and didn't check the regs, which you should always do. I'm sure eventually I would have checked it, but like I said, a, a listener brought it up to my attention. And so I wanted to make sure that I had clarified that. And then also give you guys that bold prediction. Uh, I think it's going to be a very, very good muzzleloader year. So, um, on top of that, what else this weekend, I'll be headed to the one nation expo on Saturday, which means I will have already been there by the time y'all listen to this. I am considering maybe driving down to, uh, the Texas trophy hunters, association show in fort worth on sunday not sure just not sure i want to be away from the family that much and be gone the entire weekend um but thinking about hitting that show up on sunday i feel like i'm missing one more announcement that i was going to get out i talked about the muzzleloader i made the season correction um like i said guys some really really good antler growth i got a few more cameras out over the weekend uh i'm looking for the two percent buck I set up another protein feeder in his fall range because I just haven't been getting him where I usually get him during the summer. Um, so still looking for that buck, and I guess that's all I have. I'm sure I'll think of it and maybe throw it at the end if I forgot anything. So, so yeah, like I said, we have a really good episode for you guys this week. We are talking to Coulter Chitwood, and he is a professor at Oklahoma State University. And we kind of talk about, yes, he's a professor, but some of his main duties and goals are actually doing research and so when I reached out to him 
um, I, I kind of gave him the option. I was like, hey, like, do you have anything that you're passionate about that you would prefer to kind of get out to the to the public? And he sent me a huge list. Um, he's been involved with a lot of different projects. And so I picked a few of my favorites, favorites, excuse me, and that's basically what we covered this week. And so we start off talking about pronghorns, fairly specific to Oklahoma, but it goes outside the state borders just a little bit. Uh, I learned a lot about pronghorn, um, and I, again, I won't ruin it. I'll let him explain it because he'll do it better than I did. We also talked about wild turkeys. We talked about population decline, what it might take to get uh, you know those turkey numbers back to back up to where they used to be, and then to kind of put a bow on the episode, we just decided to talk about wolves. And so he has worked specifically with Alaskan wolves. From my time in Idaho, I know a little bit more about kind of the stuff going on in the lower 48, the greater eco... Gosh, I cannot talk right now. The greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And so we covered that and we just have a grand old time. And so it's a little bit of a random episode, but very educational and also very entertaining. And so, uh, yeah, I want to thank Coulter for coming back on. It sounds like we'll probably have to do this again sometime because we had so much more that we could have talked about that uh, we kind of had to cut it off a little bit. And so, so yeah, that's what we have going on this week. I hope you guys are excited. Hopefully I'll see some of you guys at the One Nation Expo this weekend. And that is all I got for you. So we're going to hear a quick word from our partners, and then we will jump right into the episode right after this. There is truly no place like the great outdoors in Oklahoma. When you're out in the wild, you want your wireless devices to work. Unlike other carriers, Bravado Wireless believes that coverage in rural areas is important so that you stay connected. With competitively priced plans and coverage where you need it, the mission of Bravado Wireless is to keep you connected no matter where you are. Visit bravadowireless.com or check them out at one of their retail locations. Bravado Wireless, the power of connection. Hey everybody, welcome to today's show, and today we got a great guest. We have Mr. Coulter Chitwood. How you doing, Coulter? Good, John. Good, good. Well, I appreciate you joining us today, and we got a lot of awesome, fun topics to cover today, but before we get to that stuff, why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, still fairly new to Oklahoma. Um, been here about three years now, but I'm a I'm a faculty member in uh, the Natural Resource Ecology and Management uh, Department at OSU. So, uh, so I'm based out of Stillwater. I, I teach a couple classes for our department, uh, kind of senior level courses, um, specifically in game species management and um, and wildlife techniques. And then the the bulk of my job, though, is focused on graduate training uh, and research. And so, uh, you know, as soon as I got here, I started working really closely with uh, our state agency, the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. Um, so you'll hear me say ODWC a lot. I know a lot of your listeners are familiar with that acronym, um, but <clears throat> we work on, you know, what I like to think are a lot of projects that uh, ultimately benefit their their management plans and hopefully the the hunters and anglers of of Oklahoma and beyond. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the the short version. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, we were talking a little bit beforehand and you said while you are a professor, you know, that's what a lot of people think of, but really a big part of what you do is just research. And when I reached out to you, I was 
you know, I was kind of interested in what you would like to talk about. You know, I just feel like you have your hands in a lot of different baskets. And, and so you sent me a, a big long list. And so I picked a couple of my, of my favorites and what I think people would be interested in. So, so yeah, that's kind of what we have uh, lined up for people today. And so again, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very excited about it and I'm going to let you do most of the talking. That's one of the good things about this, uh, this podcast is a lot of times I just kind of get things rolling and, and let people go. And so, uh, so yeah, if it's okay with you, I think I'd like to start with pronghorns. And so you said you've done a bunch of research on that. And so was it uh, was it Oklahoma centered or was it kind of across the range? Just tell us a little bit about your research. Yeah, so so this that project is uh, Oklahoma centered in a way, um, but I'll elaborate I'll elaborate on that in just a second. Um, this is one of the projects that is funded by ODWC. Uh, just happened to come about right as I was uh, starting in my role here uh, in uh, in NREM at, at OSU. And um, <clears throat> basically, it stemmed from, you know, anecdotal evidence that ODWC was collecting out in the panhandle um, that suggested the, the population might be in decline. Mm-hmm. And so for folks who don't know, uh, the, the primary range of, of pronghorn in Oklahoma is all of Cimarron County. So that's the westernmost county in the Panhandle. And then the western half of Texas County. So that's the next county if you're coming back this way, you know, west to east. So basically the city of Guyman all the way west toward New Mexico. Now, <clears throat> there are historical accounts. And, and even today, there are still sporadic uh, groups of pronghorn farther east, um, even into the downstate area, you know, east of the Panhandle. But but by and large, the bulk of the range, and certainly anybody who's who's put in for uh, for pronghorn tags in Oklahoma, knows that you're basically looking at at everything from the town of Guyman west. And so um, that area, ODWC, obviously they've got their their tag allocations. They're monitoring their harvest. They're doing flights at different times of year to estimate population size, um, or at least get a minimum count, uh, and also uh, use those flights those flights and ground observations to hopefully get a picture of what recruitment looks like and recruitment just being the fancy term for how many fawns are we making relative to the number of does we got on the landscape, right? Because you got to have some of those fawns become adults in order to replace ultimately the mortality that's occurring at the adult uh, stage. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the longer story uh, without getting into, you know, really boring details, essentially, ODWC um, was recognizing signs that it that it appeared that population might be declining. Now, to your other point, is this Oklahoma centric? Well, I, you don't have to be a geographer to look at a map of Oklahoma and recognize that the Panhandle is pretty dang unique in its relative size, and the fact that that area I just described is immediately touching or close to. Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. Mm-hmm. So in our case right now, yes, the answer is this is an Oklahoma-centric uh, project. We only capture adult pronghorn within the boundary of the Oklahoma panhandle that I described. Um, however, we have uh, agreement, cooperative agreements, if you will, with all of those states that I just listed, because obviously our collared pronghorn don't necessarily stop when they see the state line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those other states, we, we have good communication with all of them. Matter of fact, we have official partners on this project from Texas. 
But but in Kansas and, and Colorado and New Mexico, um, we're in constant communication during the peak times of our field effort with those states. And they're they're vested, honestly, in the work that ODWC is funded here through OSU because they don't have data on pronghorn in their respective areas, right? Mm -hmm. So Southwest Kansas, Southeast Colorado, Northeast New Mexico, all of that area from the from the perspective of a pronghorn, that that's all possible range, right? Mm -hmm. But but we have these kind of these these political boundaries, right? That we have to operate within, and so that's why you know your your question is a good one, and I want your listeners to understand that. It's, it's a positive thing that Oklahoma is um, in and of itself looking into, you know, pronghorn ecology and population dynamics in the panhandle, but it has an immediate impact on Kansas and Colorado and New Mexico and Texas because we're trading animals for sure. You know, there's no, there's nothing stopping them from going across the border. Um, and if, and since I've been talking for a while, <laughs> if you want to, a, a, a quick little anecdote. One of the things we were interested in when this project started was actually how much movement we were seeing in pronghorn across the state boundary. Um, now, obviously, that depends a little bit on where you catch them, right? So if you catch one right in close to Guyman, well, it's got to move, you know, say 15 miles south to cross into Texas. Mm -hmm. But we didn't know. Even ODWC wasn't sure if they had some populations that might be, you know, at least migrating in a short distance um, and using seasonal ranges that cross boundaries. But right now, you know, I'm going to call this tentative results because we've got a couple of years of data now. We're not seeing a lot of big movements like that. Hmm. Most of the time, the pronghorn are staying pretty close to where we catch them. So we catch them in the winter, say January, February with a helicopter, put a GPS collar on them. Obviously, we do a lot of work during fawning season in the summer for collecting other data, but those GPS points are being collected year round. And right now, they're they're fairly much homebodies. Um, there's been a few exceptions. We do have you know a doe or two that have spent time in Texas, but they were caught right down near the Texas line. We've got a handful. I, I want to say between three and five does uh, that we caught fairly close to the New Mexico line that do pop into New Mexico. Uh, we had at least a couple in the first year run pretty deep into New Mexico uh, for fawning. And uh, unfortunately, we were able to ascertain that they they dropped their fawns in New Mexico, uh, donated the fawns to the New Mexican coyotes, and then uh, and then walked back to Oklahoma. <laughs> and so the, the does actually ended up uh, by midsummer back in Oklahoma, right near where we had caught them. So you know, again, that's all very anecdotal right now because obviously there's no analysis that goes with that. But um, for your listeners who are just kind of into that kind of thing, um, it's pretty neat seeing those dots on the map and trying to figure out, okay, how and why are they using the space that they're using? I mean, that that is one of our big questions. What, uh, you know, what is that underlying landscape? That the ag, the rangeland, the the extractive energy, the wind energy, the fencing, the roads, all of those affect. Um, the movement corridors of pronghorn and that's one of the ultimately that's some of the stuff that we'll be analyzing as we wrap up this project mm -hmm. that's interesting i just when you look at the landscape that pronghorn pronghorns you know occupy usually it's very flat very open you know not a lot of 
uh, brush or cover or anything like that. And I don't have a, a ton of pronghorn experience, but I did. I, I went with a high school buddy and we hunted them in New Mexico one time at his grandparents' place. And I just remember uh, we had always heard how good their eyesight is. And that's what you have to kind of watch out for. And we were watching this little group and it's so wide open that you can kind of count. You, you kind of know how far away they are because you can basically count the section lines. And we mm-hmm. had this group that was probably a mile and a half away. And we decided we were going to try to get a little closer, you know, take a closer look. And we came over this little rise. And I kid you not, we look up and those things were running away from us. Like they spotted us, you know, almost oh, yeah. a mile and a half away. And they just like ran and ran and ran. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like I would have pictured them as roamers and not necessarily homebodies with like a smaller core area. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's fair. Um we we didn't know what to expect. I mean, the one thing we have here, kind of the southern latitude. If you think about it, or, or if you get curious, you know, folks can can go on the old Google and and look at the the range of of pronghorn. Where Oklahoma, the Panhandle, is very much on the not only the eastern edge, but we're pretty far south. Hmm. So we didn't environmentally. I don't think any of us on our project team would have predicted massive migration, right? Because they don't need to move elevationally or to avoid snow depth, right? Because um, and you make a great point. Also, if you if you're already in a flat landscape where you feel safe, provided you can get all the resources you need, why would you want to move? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, so we figured they weren't going to be uh, crazy migratory, but I think so far I, I would just admit that I was a little surprised that we haven't seen more, even if it was kind of random movement. I just, I'm a little surprised. Um, I, I joked with a colleague, matter of fact, I'll use this example. Some of our pronghorn home ranges, if I just took the dots, right? So this GPS data, right, is coming to us in the form of an XY coordinate, right? So mm-hmm. think about dropping a pin on Onyx maps. The difference is we've got a pin on that pronghorn at least every five hours. Well, you collect those over a whole year, you've essentially got the data you need to look at well, what's their home range size? What resources are they selecting? Well, my colleague was back east and we were joking and he was asking, he said, man, are y'all, are y'all's pronghorn moving anywhere? I said, no, honestly, if I picked those dots up off a map, took them to central North Carolina and put them back down on a landscape in central North Carolina, I could probably trick my eastern colleagues into thinking it was white-tailed deer home ranges. Mm. They've been that local mm. for the most part to where they were captured. Um, but again, you know, we're also part of these long running projects. This project's a five year project in total with four years of capture. And so we're we're halfway through. We've done two years of winter capture on the adults and two spring and summer fawning seasons. But we got two more to go. And the hope in there is that you also get some variation in range conditions and, and agricultural conditions and precipitation and weather. And and thankfully, in the first two years, we've already seen a, a pretty big swing. We were in a, a big time drought out there uh, the first year, which would have been capture year 2022. Uh, whereas this past spring, man, some of Cimarron County and Texas County has just gotten pounded with rain, mm-hmm. you know, certainly relative to to what happened the year before. So so um, so I guess I'm saying that so that folks understand that everything's preliminary when you're collecting this much data, because that could change. I mean, we could end up with some individuals that do end up making big movements. Um, but so far, we're just not seeing that signature. And and I wanted to add, John, while we're, since you told that story, 
um, I love the story about their their vision because I feel like, you know, you're from Southeast Oklahoma. I didn't say this at the beginning, but for folks who don't know me, I'm originally from Northwest Georgia. So I grew up, I'm a Southern Appalachian hillbilly. I like to joke, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. so I'm used to closed canopy, hardwood ridges, you know, cold water streams, you know, much more like the extreme kind of Southeast of Oklahoma or I think Missouri Ozarks or Arkansas Ozarks. Those, those systems all look pretty similar. So, you know, I spent, better part of my childhood trying to figure out how to beat the nose of a whitetail mm -hmm. you know and then years later through my professional training right ended up in North Carolina and worked on whitetails and coyotes and even did a little turkey work there and then end up working on elk in Missouri and then end up in Montana uh, and we could circle back to some of those other projects later but when I finally got to hunt pronghorn it was it was interesting you know, because I knew their vision was good, but I think everybody at some point has made that the mistake that you mm -hmm. essentially admitted you, to making. Yeah, where you gotta you, you gotta kind of have that aha moment, like yes, yeah. it really is that good. Yeah, it's not like oh, they can see me at a hundred yards if I scratch my nose. It's like no, when you skyline yourself from a mile away, that might be enough. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that said, they're also really curious and you don't have to ask too many. I have never personally done this, but I've done it on our research project to demonstrate to students that, you know, you can peek up over a rise and know there's a group. In this case, we just needed to see the group and know which does were in this group that had collars on. And I think one of them had seen us already, but, you know, I had one of the students take off their hat and just wave it above, above the brush, you know, and here the whole group starts kind of slow walking toward us. And they, they closed from, I don't know, they were probably 150 yards when we first peaked it up and they got, they got inside 70 yards, you know, before they really then figured out like, Oh, okay. They, we probably shouldn't do this. Um, I just think stuff like that's really fascinating. And, and I hope that if any of your listeners have never gotten to go pursue pronghorn or, or go see pronghorn that um, they remember those stories, you know, the first chance that they get to go out there. But yeah. And anyway. it's so, it's so deceiving because if you, you know, drive out to New Mexico or Eastern Colorado or wherever, you know, they'll stand like 30 yards from the side of the highway, just like a whitetail would, but you yep. get out and they sense that danger. They're gone. Yep. They're yep. gone. And they're, and they're bad to not stop running for a mile, mm -hmm. even if they're not running all out. I mean, most folks know they're the fastest land mammal in North America. Mm -hmm. um but even when they're not just sprinting like kind of like you indicated when those when that group spotted you years ago they'll they'll put space between them and danger with ease yeah and that's because that's their strength right is yeah. you can't you can't catch them and they can see really well it doesn't mean they can't wind you but it's much more rare um mm -hmm. you know that that's that that's how a hunter gets busted far more likely that they get spotted yeah you uh you mentioned you know coyotes eating fawns and I, I hadn't really considered that but what uh, what about predators like you know if up in the panhandle maybe they get the occasional bear I don't even know if they get that um do they really have like does an adult pronghorn in the Oklahoma panhandle have any real predators? Well, so so this is a great question and I'll yes so I'm gonna try to answer all that and give you as much nuance as I can too. Um, we so from just what would be the predator suite we would look for coyotes and bobcats both are present certainly are both capable of taking uh fawns 
Mm-hmm. And and at least with respect to coyotes, uh, we would expect that they um, they could take an adult. Um, there are black bears in the extreme kind of western northwestern tip of the Panhandle, and though I'm not affiliated with that project, there is an ongoing. Or I guess it's just wrapped up its second year of field work, so it's kind of in the latter stages. But it's also funded by ODWC expressly because. There had been increased sightings and reports of bears near the Black Mesa area. And so without, again, I don't want to derail you from your question here, but just so you know, you know, I have colleagues that are working on that project and it was a, they used, uh, you know, baits and lures to put out hair snares. Mm -hmm. So the bear comes into the lure and has to cross barbed wire. And and it snags hairs, and then those hairs can be collected under a certain protocol, under certain amounts of time. All this, by the way, being monitored by trail cameras, mm-hmm. and then and then they can get DNA off of the hairs. So they were using you know this kind of DNA focused and camera focused project to kind of assess the expanse of bears out in the western part of the Panhandle. So all that said, we would not predict that that black bears are, though they're large animals and capable of, you know, obviously overpowering a pronghorn, they're not uh, high on the list of, of an expected adult predator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that they would take a fawn if they happen to cross one. There's, I mean, and, and same thing for elk, like back East, black bears in Western North Carolina, initially when, when North Carolina had reintroduced elk were a huge problem for elk calves because it just so happened that there was a really high density of black bears. Mm. Um, those same black bears were not chasing down 500 pound cows and killing mm-hmm. yeah. them. But if they happen to cross a 40 pound calf, well, then they can obviously overpower that calf, particularly when it's young and it's just trying to hide. So, um, so, so let me know if you want to follow up on any of that, but to get back to your main pronghorn related question, uh, what we're seeing so far. And again, I want to stress this is preliminary because we're also collecting DNA from kill sites by swabbing the remains. So imagine for a moment that you come across an adult that's dead and there's no, you know, it's not hunting season. It's not by a road. There's no obvious sign of trauma. Well, what do you, what do you think? Could it be old age? Could it be disease? Could it be predation? Because maybe there's not even a lot of sign that it's been fed on. Um, If we can find something that looks like a killing bite wound, we can actually swab that wound and subsequently send that swab so think like a a slightly fancier q-tip you send that to a lab to to identify from predator saliva what predator was present and i've done this on on whitetail projects and elk projects in other states that's a secondary objective here in oklahoma but um, that's why i said everything's preliminary because right now almost all of what i'm telling you today is based on field evidence alone and we are, we have detected coyote and bobcat predation of fawns. And we have fairly confidently detected at least a handful of coyote predations on adults. I think in all cases, they were female. I'd have to check that. I don't know that we've documented it on a buck, but we do have, um, you know, a handful of females that we have high, high degree of certainty were, were killed by a coyote. Now, that doesn't mean that the coyote didn't have an advantage. You know, what if she got clipped by a car the day before, you know, and she's limping around. Now she's 
now she's unable to outrun that coyote. Uh, the reason I'm telling everybody, the reason I'm saying that and, and suggesting we have some nuance around discussions of predators is predators have to eat too. So none of this is the blame game that like, oh my gosh, predators are killing all the pronghorn. No, that's not it. We just trying to understand the different causes of mortality, which rates are high, which rates are low. Is it average? Um, and since it's early yet, we're still sorting that out because some of our information, like I said, is based on only the field observation. And what we hope to do in the coming years is get some of that genetic information to provide more certainty. Okay, we thought this was the coyote kill. And then we also managed to get coyote saliva off of the carcass. Yeah, that seems pretty likely it was a coyote kill. Yeah. But if we send in swabs and we don't, it's like, well, maybe maybe we can't be as confident. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that answered your question. So like I said, a little bit of nuance there, but for us, for, for Oklahoma and, and, and even the surrounding areas that we've already discussed, coyotes and bobcats are going to be the big ones. Um, it's going to be mostly on that neonatal stage when they're, when they're young and vulnerable, the, the small fawns. Um, and then beyond that, you've got, yeah, your occasional possible bear. And I didn't mention this, but I will now, you know, Mountain lions are certainly capable of taking pronghorn. Um, and I, a project that I'm affiliated with, it's actually over in New Mexico. So this has nothing to do with the Oklahoma pronghorn project, but it's about predation by collared lions. And I know that they've documented several pronghorn kills hmm. by collared lions over in that project. So far more likely lions are after things like mule deer and elk where they co-occur because um, they're a little easier to catch than a pronghorn. Um, but it it does happen. And so, uh, you know, if if and when uh, lions moved through that area, uh, it it technically means they could be on the list of possible predators. We just we don't expect that to be high, of course. Right. Right. Yeah. So does that answer does that answer everything? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got one more quick one. Uh, and okay. I don't, I, you may have covered this at the beginning, I don't think, but basically the the whole point of this research project was because you said it was hinted at that populations are declining. Mm -hmm. And I know the, the project isn't done yet from your findings. Are you allowed to tell us if you think they are or are not? Yeah. I, yeah, I will. And I, and here's here's how I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to say, first of all, this hasn't been plugged into a model. It's just based on my now 10 years of experience doing this type of work on a lot of different large game species, white-tailed deer and elk uh, primarily. The recruitment, right, that's that term I mentioned before, the, the fawn sur survival parameter is a, bit, is a bit lower than I think some of us expected. Mm. So what, what I might um, predict right now based on two years of data is that it could indicate a very slow growing or, or at best stable or even declining population based on that fawn metric alone. Mm. But like I said at the beginning, you know, we, we also expect variation and swings and things like weather and precipitation. Well, that can affect body condition that can affect, uh, you know, the weight of fawns, uh, which could potentially affect their survivability. So we don't want to put too fine a point on that yet. But I would say at this point, we've been at least a little bit surprised at the relative uh, low survival of fawns. And on occasion, even the fact that some of our females, um, 
at, it's not constant, but at certain at certain times we've we've speculated that maybe even the female mortality rate is a little greater than we thought. Mm. Well, those two things combined, honestly, yeah, that could point toward population decline. Um, we don't want to. That's not to cause a panic. I'm just being honest with you. That's very preliminary. That's mm -hmm. not in a model. That's basically in in the model that's in my brain, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and and so and ODWC is very much aware of this. That's why they're funding it. You know, because at the end of the day, they need to match up their hunting opportunity as well as how they respond to landowners who who might have locally high populations and need assistance with additional harvest but that might be balanced against areas in the panhandle that have low population densities mm -hmm. where the population has declined so if that so if, if you're a listener what i'm saying is it doesn't mean that all across the range the same thing is happening so one landowner could see so many pronghorn he's complaining every other day because they're in his ag field well another landowner could be commenting that well i used to see more 10 years ago and now I don't. And so what our research is trying to do is what are the spatial and temporal variables that help explain that and and what can ODW ODWC do to respond from a harvest perspective. So gotcha. hopefully that like I said a lot of nuance there. I'm not trying to straddle the fence and and not give you a good answer. I'm just trying to acknowledge that we're halfway through and and there's a lot more data to be collected yet. Right, right. Well I uh, I would definitely love it if you could keep me updated as as the project goes along because that's that's sure. really interesting stuff. So and, yeah, uh, you know I, I like a lot of people in the state have been putting in for that very coveted uh, draw tag up there in the Panhandle. They've yet to draw it, just like most people. So yep. Yep. yeah, yeah, I, I definitely I definitely uh, want them to be sticking around. So that's right, and that's what everybody wants. We should put it. Yeah, we should say that's what everybody wants. I mean, the hunters that we talk to. Um, the landowners, you know, like I said, you, you get variations of 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 responses to what whether people are super pro pronghorn or or have a little bit of you know anger against them, and that probably just depends on where you live. But by and large, that's where we're trying to land, and certainly that's what ODWC wants. I mean, at the at the bare minimum, we want to make sure this population, you know, is sustainable, mm -hmm. and um, and so I hope that that our project here in another two to three years when it wraps up is a big part of that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, one of the other topics you had listed that I, I really want to touch on is wild turkeys. And, okay. you know, about two years ago, I feel like you kind of started hearing some people giving some warnings like, Hey, like we're seeing some lower numbers. And I, I think some people believed it. Some people didn't. And then I think mm -hmm. last year came around and I, I don't know anybody who was like, man, we are overrun with turkey. You know, everybody was talking about how they saw a decline, seeing less birds than they had. Uh, but then, uh, fortunately, I think this spring, I've heard a lot of good news. It seems like a lot of people are seeing an above average amount of pulse and everything like that. And so I would just love to hear any and all thoughts you had on wild turkeys, what's happening with them, what the future holds. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, absolutely. And and the comments that you just made about year to year variation, what people are seeing, that's this is great learning experience for those that aren't, you know, constantly in the into the sciencey stuff that I do every day. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're speaking to the challenge right there. Yeah. Just because 
you don't see a lot of pults one year doesn't mean that the next year there's not a whole bunch more pults. And so by and large, over a five and 10 year time scale in your neck of the woods, you could be seeing really stable, even increasing populations. Where this has gotten interesting is the fact that over large areas, especially across the southeastern U.S., starting in the, in, I don't know, it kind of depends on where you cut it, but let's say, you know, maybe as early as 2005, maybe say 2010, um, the number of places starting to see what they viewed as concerning recruitment numbers. So there's that word again, right? A lot of, a lot of your turkey hunters are going to have heard of poults per hen, right? That's a metric that gets thrown around a lot on Instagram and Facebook and agencies are using that as a metric of, are we reproducing? Are we making enough baby turkeys to replace the inevitable deaths that occur at the adult stage? Um, that number started dipping in a lot of places during that time frame I just mentioned, including Oklahoma in the last, say, 10, 10 years, 10, 10, 12, 15 years, depending on how you how you look at it. Um, and so um, so again, that does not mean that the sky is falling everywhere because there's obviously going to be spatial and temporal variation. We're talking about an area, imagine just painting with a broad brush from Oklahoma, you know, south to Texas, and then all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. You know, just start listing those states, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas. If you go farther, just a shade farther north, you got, you know, Missouri, Kentucky, Virginia. Well, that's a big, huge area. But what got people's attention is the fact that across such a big, huge area, it seemed odd that some of these metrics started declining. And, and so that's what I think, that's what your question's really about, right? Is this idea that in the last, especially in the last two to five years, those conversations really started getting louder. Mm -hmm. uh, they really started combining. You saw agencies starting to take action to reduce bag limits or change season dates. We've even done that here in Oklahoma for those that know. I mean, hell, as I said, I've just been here, what, three years? Mm -hmm. And I've gone from, you know, a three-bird statewide limit, which would have been spring of 21, now down to the one, okay? Mm -hmm. ODWC did that in, cons in consult with hunters who supported and actually asked for that that regulation change to happen. Um, but that goes to to show the importance of your point, which is it's become a really big topic. And much like the pronghorn story that we just went over, that's basically why we're doing turkey research in Oklahoma. Same exact, as a matter of fact, that project is on the same timeline as the pronghorn project. They started at the same time, they will wrap up at the same time. And the the impetus was about exactly the same. ODWC had evidence of certain metrics that appeared to indicate population decline, um, both in eastern birds, i.e. the southeast part of the state. We're going to focus. That's where our study area is there. And in Rio's. And, I, and on that part of the project, we focus in southwest Oklahoma. So um, so I think that probably answers your question. Uh, but, but yeah, redirect me if I, if I missed anything. No, no, that's great. Um, and you mentioned kind of the, the year to year, uh, differences, you know, one year could be 
bad, one year it could be good. Mm-hmm. Let's say let's say that you know all these accounts are correct, and we do have this bumper crop crop of pulse this year. Um, you know, I know there's a lot to be said about survival rate. I've heard it said somewhere that as soon as a turkey is born, it's looking for a way to die. Um, yeah. You know, but like, is it, could it be as simple as maybe just one or two good years of good hatches and we're kind of back to the old glory days? Um, is there a whole lot more to it to that? And then also what are, what are some practical ways that people could help? Like are there are there certain habitat projects people could do uh, to help the turkeys along or is it a little bit more complicated than that and going to take more of a, a state or even a, you know, southeastern region, um, uh, just people getting together and working on a big scale? Yeah. Okay. So two, there's kind of two questions there. Let me, let me pick them apart. And you are correct that they are both very complicated. Um, and so disappointingly, I don't, I don't personally think my opinion is there's not going to be a simple answer to either one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your first question, could two great years take us back to the glory days? I don't think so in most places. And the only reason is because if if an if an area has been tracking decline for a decade or maybe even 15 years, that that hole is likely deeper. It's like it, it happens slowly. So it might have taken 10 years for anybody to notice. But once it's done that, one one or two good years in a row is probably not enough. That doesn't mean you can't turn it around. So I don't want to I don't want to 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 burst everybody's bubble here and pretend that we should throw our hands up and give up. I don't I don't think that's the case. And certainly nobody, no agency is doing that. Um, but I, I am bursting the bubble that the idea that at large scale, we're not just gonna miraculously have one great year of polls and Oklahoma's back to normal, mm-hmm. right? Or 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 the southeast region of Oklahoma or half of Arkansas. You know, when you start bringing together those big areas like that, it is going to take more. Okay, now to your second point, um, which I think was more about what what can we do? Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think so. There's been a lot of turkey research for I mean, fifty years uh, of good information. Technology is getting better and better. So the types of questions we can ask from a research standpoint are better and better. But there are a few things that we might, that we have pretty good information that we can at least point to as important. And one of the things that's coming up right now a lot across the southeastern U.S. is brooding cover. Mm -hmm. You know, early successional vegetation structure. Grasses and forbs, forbs being those, you know, flowering plants that that you you might think of as a weed right like ragweed um but those those flowers especially in spring and summer are attracting insects and those tiny little poults when they hatch out that's that's what they need to gorge on and so there's a pretty big push now you're hearing it for folks that follow along um, certainly they should check out the wild turkey science podcast uh, that's that's co-hosted by um, Dr. Marcus Lashley at the University of Florida, a good friend of mine. We did our PhDs together. Uh, we still work together. And Dr. Will Goldsby, who's at Auburn, it's funded by Turkeys for Tomorrow. They have guests on there all the time. I've been a guest on there, matter of fact, but they have guests on there all the time talking about what can you do as a hunter or a manager, whether you've got, you know, 5, 10, 20 acres. There may only be so much, but but some folks 
Maybe maybe they own a couple hundred. Maybe they lease a thousand. Maybe maybe you're friends with a bunch of neighbors and combined you've got 800, 1,000 acres. Well, you can start to make an impact. Um, and and one of the, the, the thing I mentioned here is this idea of brooding cover becoming, potentially becoming limiting on the landscape. Okay, so that would be one thing. Um, obviously, there's other things that you can do as a hunter, and I'm not going to, I'm not making fun of or decrying regulations, but if I was in Oklahoma, which I am, I would not shoot a bearded hen just because it was legal. Mm-hmm. Um, we've actually recently done some modeling that demonstrates pretty clearly that hens are important. They're the most important, you know, adult hen survival is the most important thing, but most places, there's not much a manager can do to fix that. In other words, there's always going to be some mortality. But if you're choosing to shoot a hen just because you want to punch a tag on the last day of the season, my personal opinion is that's a mistake, especially if you're in an area where you think populations are declining. So again, I'm not I'm not raining on anybody's parade. I'm not telling people how to hunt and what to shoot. By all means, if it is legal and you want to do it, knock yourself out. But if you knock on my door and tell me that for the last two years you couldn't find a gobbler, so you killed a bearded hen and you're worried that the population is going south, I'm going to tell you to quit shooting the hen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that, by the way, that is not a true story. Nobody has told me that, but I, I just want to use a little hyperbole so people understand where I'm coming from because I'm fully supportive of people hunting in the way that they want to hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, but those habitat pieces are usually the pieces that we focus on um and and i also want to say this john because i've been rambling now but just because you do one thing we're trying to figure out what's the lowest hole in the bucket in some places right now there may be many holes in the bucket so we're working on plugging each of those each of those leaks right and if you have done absolutely everything you can do for habitat you know the next question is well what about predators Mm-hmm. And again, just like I said before, I'm not on here as a predator hater. They, you know, we're talking a lot of times about native species that have co-evolved and been on these landscapes with turkeys forever. Um, but we do know landscapes have changed. In some places, predator densities, especially nest predator densities, have changed. That that may be an important factor in some places. In other places, it may not matter at all. So, you know, I've heard uh, Dwayne Elmore, he, he's here at OSU. He works with us on the Turkey Project, Craig Harper, University of Tennessee, uh, Dr. Goldsby, Dr. Lashley, we were just talking about. Um, uh, we, we don't want to just shift focus and say, well, if, if predators are taking nests, we should, just, we should just punish the predators and it'll all be fine. Mm-hmm. Not if you don't have good cover. For yeah, you might save a couple nests, but if the poults hatch out and they can't get the appropriate thermal cover that they need, and they can't get the the appropriate uh, access to insects that they need, they're going to die anyway. So, so that's all I'm saying is for folks out there that care about turkeys, listen at listen to all those options, right? Mm-hmm. And and then consider what what you need in your area. And you may know that best. I I don't, for example, John, you and I, we've never met face to face until today. So I don't know what your your the properties you hunt on look like. I don't know how many acres you got access to, right? 
So, so you might have done such a great job with habitat that if I came down there, I might say, well, dang, John, you're right. You, you know, maybe you do want to try predator trapping because anecdotally there have been stories indicating that it can work, but predator trapping is no joke. It's not something you do one time and then hang up the traps. Yeah. Research has shown time and time again, whether we're looking at white-tailed deer fawns or ground nesting birds or whatever, if you're not hitting them every year at the right time at an intensity that makes an impact it just doesn't matter and again is it legal to pull over on the side of the road and shoot a coyote sure or, or where it is legal if you want to do that go for it but shooting one coyote is not managing your turkeys it's not yeah. managing your deer and so that's all i'm asking is that people soak up this information that's coming out because the reason we're all talking about it the the professors the graduate students the the state managers, you know, the directors of state agencies, you know, are talking about all this stuff because we're trying to figure out the right way to plug the holes in the bucket. Yeah. And in some places, we're still trying to figure out well, which what's the lowest hole, right? Mm -hmm. Because if if I did everything perfect for habitat and my population was still going down, well, then you got to look somewhere else. And right now, one of the obvious places people look at that point is is predation. Yeah. So I don't mean to rant. I hope that was no. I hope that answers your questions. But but yeah. That was great. That was one of the best rants I've ever heard. <laughs> That's exactly what I was looking for. You have the right to the best wireless service. Bravado Wireless provides the best mobile wireless, high-speed internet, latest devices, and customer service at prices you feel good about. Bravado Wireless strives to put these values first and offer you the best wireless service available. See what they have to offer at bravadowireless.com or one of their retail locations in eastern Oklahoma. Let Bravado Wireless connect you to your family, friends, and business partners all over the world. Bravado Wireless, the power of connection. Man, I'd love to keep going, but uh, I do have one more topic yeah. that I'd like to cover, and I don't want to keep you too awful long. So um, okay. one of the things you threw out there was Alaskan wolves. And oh, yes. I kind of mentioned to you before we got started that Wolves have always kind of been a, uh, a little held a little place in my heart because I went to school at the University of Idaho. Uh, mm -hmm. I got I got there in 2008, which was just a few years after wolves had been reintroduced to Montana and Idaho, and mm -hmm. I fell right into the heart of the you know kind of the the pro reintroduced people, the anti the the farmers and ranchers, uh, the mm -hmm. whole shoot shovel shut up thing. Um, and, yep. and then of course, you know, everybody was blaming these Canadian super wolves that they brought in. And, and so, uh, yeah. yeah, well, it, you know, wolves are just a whole big can of worms. And so, uh, I don't know how much of like the lower 48 you've done. I know you, you mentioned Alaska, but, um, mm -hmm. I, I just feel like wolves are, they're very, uh, everybody has an opinion, I guess is what I'm yeah. trying to say. Everybody Absolutely. knows what they are. They're very recognizable. They yep. used to cover, you know, just about the entire United States. Now they're in these little pockets. And so, that's right. yeah, yeah. just anything you want to talk about, I think would be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Very charismatic. Um, also fun fact, you mentioned Idaho, my wife's from Boise originally. Oh, there you so, go. Yeah, and we met when I was in Missoula at the university of Montana, uh, yeah. where, where she was, we were both there, you know, yeah. for wildlife. She also, she's now here faculty in our, in our department. Nice. Um, so, so yeah, I, Honestly, actually, you know what, before I even go on wolves, I do want to say 
I'll be happy to keep talking. You know, if you get feedback on the turkey stuff, we we obviously can circle back to that. You okay. know, if you want to take a deeper dive, I don't want to cut short, but I do like that we've got several projects to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the wolf thing is fascinating to me. I was um, I was ten ish, tw- no twelve, I think, about the time they started reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone, and my name Coulter actually comes from John Coulter, who was the first, you know, kind of mountain man or or otherwise white explorer mm-hmm. that was given credit for discovering the area that became Yellowstone National Park. And mm-hmm. I've been traveling out there since I was a kid because my, my dad likes that area of the West, my family. We'd fly fish and all. Um, and of course, native peoples were already in those areas. So making that clear that the that John Coulter was one of the the white explorers that whose name appears on various things, right? There's a Coulter Peak. There's a, there's a wildflower that's got his name on it. Um, so point is, it's a place that's near and dear to my heart. And I actually, though I was young, remember, you know, recognizing the, the gravity of this reintroduction process that I believe was 95 and 96 in Yellowstone country. And so um, you are absolutely right. After that, you just have to step back and say, okay, everybody's entitled. To, to have an opinion. Um, we do like to base those opinion in fact, um, but people have different, they come at it differently, right? You've got producers that are ranchers that are worried about livestock loss. Um, you've got guide services that are worried about, frankly, I'm going to just call it what it is, competing with elk. I mean, in other words, they want their hunters to shoot elk. They, every, every bull that happens to get taken down by a wolf is one less bull that a client could shoot. Okay. Um, and then you've got, then you got folks that just love animals for the sake of animals, whether they be elk or, or wolves, um, right. They're charismatic. Um, and like you said, they used to range widely over North America and here humans have come in and constrained that even persecuted wolves. Well, I'm not here to tell people how to think, uh, what I am here to do is tell, tell you and others, like, I've always been fascinated that I would have at the age of eight, 10, 12, 15, if you'd asked me my favorite animal, I would have said a gray wolf. I was always fascinated with them, even though as a hunter, I understood that they had to eat the very game species that I also wanted to pursue, you know, mule deer, elk, moose, whatever. And so um, when I got to move to Montana and to get back on the point, I guess I too got to experience some of what you experienced in Idaho where you kind of hear, you, you get a, a bigger sense for the people who who are dealing with wolves in their backyard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, though I haven't worked on wolves in Montana and Idaho, many of my colleagues and some of my closest friends have. I mean, some of them did their actual master's degree or PhD expressly on, you know, wolf studies that were funded by Fish, Wildlife, and Parks in Montana, you know, or Idaho Fish and Game. So, where I come came into this is I ended up kind of having some luck following my lap up in Missoula. And one of my last postdocs before I came to Oklahoma State on faculty was working on a project on Prince of Wales Island in Southeast Alaska. And you want to talk about an interesting system. Um, these wolves are trapped and hunted legally you know under under a uh, you know regulation structure mm-hmm. but at the same time at least three times and i think now there might be a fourth 
they've been petitioned for listing under the Endangered Species Act. And and it's in part I don't want to you know I'm still you know always trying to wrap my head around the the legal technicalities right but it's it's because in some respects they could be considered a subspecies in other respects it has to do with uh, lack of range and and protection of critical habitat so without getting into the legal reasons the reason I think that that's a fun thought experiment is most people when they think of an endangered species they think of something that's really rare we don't usually hunt something that's being protected under the ESA. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this Prince of Wales system so interesting is they're still actually being harvested in the best way Alaska Fish and Game thinks they can be harvested, i.e. sustainably. But at the same time, there are these other pressures, some of them political, some of them socioeconomic, you know, that folks are concerned that the population may be unsustainably low. So I'm not here to pass judgment on the legal part, as I indicated a minute ago, but where I came in was trying to do a better job of counting them. So one of the things that we do in my lab um, and in labs that in my research lab, I mean, and in and in labs that I've worked with at the University of Montana is use things like trail cameras to try to better estimate population size. And so I was a part of a team that put together a a uh, a camera trapping survey following a new methodology that incidentally my now wife actually created during her master's <laughs> she created she created the 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 model working on elk in idaho huh. um but it's now been used in many systems to to estimate densities of of cougars um uh I think there was a sheep species in Hawaii. Somebody used it on. We're using it here in Oklahoma to look at white-tailed deer and wild turkey. Um, and so, long story short, I was a part of this team as the as the postdoc on the project, postdoctoral uh, uh, researcher on the project that put together the the ongoing project up there. So, unlike the turkey and pronghorn, where my lab here is one of the labs leading that research. In other words, I have graduate students that are actually out on those projects. The one in Alaska is actually being led by a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and and a, co- a close colleague at Alaska Fish and Game. That's their state agency. So my role was essentially to like kind of craft the plan. And then the Alaska Fish and Game funded Dr. Sean Crimmins at Alaska Fairbanks and he has a student there. I serve on that student's committee, um, and that project is ongoing. Matter of fact, every time we have a meeting about it, we joke. I threaten about how and when I can get up to Alaska because <laughs> I've actually never been on Prince of Wales Island, mm. and yet I've looked at a lot of maps. I've looked at a lot of collar data. I've I've thrown down camera grids. I've I've talked about protocols for how to better better measure the things that need to be measured, and I really want to get up there. Uh, to see the system because it's it's pretty fascinating yeah so uh, is that is that kind of what you wanted to hear i mean yeah no absolutely um yeah like you said it's so interesting and one uh, i mean there's a a hundred different uh interesting aspects to this whole wolf thing but you know like you were just talking about how you on that that one population they're thinking about listing on the endangered species whereas here in the lower 48 there's areas where we're trying as hard as we can to get them delisted. Some places have been successful, some places haven't. Mm-hmm. And so it's just it's just interesting how 
you know, just the difference, the variation in different places, you know, absolutely. This, well, this population's doing great. This one might be struggling. Yeah. And, and yeah. how do you manage all of them? Exactly. And that, and obviously wolves on Prince of Wales Island, you know, they, they have no physical connection to, you know, Alberta, Montana, Idaho. So it, it's understandable that they'd be managed distinctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but there you're talking about hundreds, whereas, you know, the state of Idaho, the state of Montana, the state of Wyoming, there are now thousands of wolves. Mm-hmm. And so you're absolutely right. What, what it comes down to, and again, I'm not I'm not trying to weigh in politically, but ultimately that's where it always heads because yeah. you end up with, you know, biologists that are kind of meeting these benchmarks and they might say, well, hey, by our benchmarks, this, this whole area, this Montana, Idaho, you know, Wyoming, let's just make that up. This whole area is hitting the benchmarks. But then all of a sudden you see an immediate response by a state agency to liberalize harvest. Yeah. So what happens? Well, then some group that has a vested interest in wolves sues and says, well, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says that the population was recovered. But then and I'm making this up, by the way, John's scenario. (laughs) But then Wyoming immediately said, well, we're going to kill this many wolves per year. So somebody sues them. And now it's hung up in the courts and then and then they got to go to battle and the and the feds or the state agencies have to present data on, well, how do we can we count wolves? Well, do we really have a good sense of how many are there? Can we show that the, that they're stable or that they're increasing? You know, and then meanwhile, the other folks are saying, yeah, but then if you kill them at this rate, what would that do? Honestly, it's exhausting. And it's the it's the toughest part of the stuff that we do. And again, I don't do that here. Right. My job is usually to do the research component. But that doesn't mean that that research that we do can't end up in a court case. Yeah. Right. Because I just told you that part of my role in this project is to try to get a better estimate of wolf numbers on Prince of Wales. Mm -hmm. Well, if somebody ends up suing somebody over that, they the the state agency is going to want to stand behind a number and a method that they feel is rigorous and scientific and defensible. You know, and after that, it's up to judges and lawyers, honestly. And um, and so it's messy uh, and it can be frustrating. And we could, uh, well, as you know, you could you could do 14 episodes in a row mm-hmm. on nothing but the 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 politics around wolf management in the West. Yeah. Um, but but hopefully what your readers get out of that or listeners get out of the, this right now is just that, like, I'm constantly amazed at the stuff that that we get to be involved in um and by we i mean on the academic side you know Mm -hmm. yeah i teach some classes but most of my job i I spent 75 percent of my appointment is focused on research and so that's direct interface with state agencies and sometimes federal agencies to answer these hard questions because if we can't figure out how to get good answers we dang sure can't figure out how to get something like wolves listed or delisted, depending on which way it needs to go, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so, oh, and then back to the first two things, same thing with turkeys and pronghorn. We can't solve the problem if we don't have the right information required to solve it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I, I can't complain. I do a lot of emails. I do a lot of paperwork, but when I get to go out to the panhandle and stand under a helicopter and, you know, watch the grad students spinning blood samples and and uh, 
stash and tissue samples and fecal material, and we know that we got, you know, 60 more collars put out, um, that's a pretty good day in office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes those uh, pretty species are the hardest ones to manage because those are the ones that usually have the most interest. So absolutely. A lot yeah. of people at yeah. the table. Mm-hmm. We use the term charismatic for a reason because that's that's it. When they're charismatic, it means that that everybody notices. You go talking about some sort of weird spider nobody's heard of and and they don't care. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not really fair to spiders, by the way, but mm-hmm. but it's a perfect example. You know, snakes and spiders sometimes creep people out. So they're not engaged. But boy, you put a you put a, a baby polar bear on a postcard <laughs> and you got their attention, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's good because it in the end. For, for conservation, I think, to be holistic, it can't always be about single species. Yeah. And so some people, maybe we need to engage them over a postcard with polar bears because that might be the first time in their life they've ever thought about conservation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so anyway, I don't want to I don't want to give you another rant, but I, I'm <laughs> really, really passionate about this stuff. I think it's really yeah. interesting and I'm glad to chat with you about it. Yeah. Yeah, man. I appreciate you coming on. Believe it or not, we've already been rolling for an hour. And so, oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, time flies. But uh, before I let you go, I want to be sure that people know where to find you. If somebody, So if somebody's listening to this and it sounds really interesting to them and they want to look up, uh, you know, maybe one of these studies or your research, where should people go? Yeah. So um, that's a great question. You, you know, with professors anyway, you Google Google searching my name will likely land you on any number of Oklahoma State pages where you can you can get you know you can see faculty information. Um, I also have a, a web page that that we maintain periodically. There's not a lot of research results on there, but information about some of the ongoing projects, um, and that's actually through WordPress. So again, if you if you Google my name and, and even throw WordPress in there, you'll find the the Chitwood Lab website. And then um, I guess most recently, as far as social media stuff goes, um, I'm at Big Game Doc on Instagram. And, um, you know, we've alluded to this before, but a lot of with a lot of these podcasts and stuff going on, there's a lot of relationships among labs and we share each other's content. Um, that is a place where once when we once we start having results, I anticipate being able to share some things that way. Um, we've already been sharing capture related information on our pronghorn project and our turkey project. Um, so certainly folks could, could give us a follow on there and uh, and get periodic updates on, on what we got going on out of my lab. Awesome. Great. Well, Coulter, one, I just appreciate you doing all this research and, and work for us. Um, we really appreciate it. And and also, we just appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and talking to us about it. And hopefully some people will look you up and, and learn a few things. So, yeah, so yeah, sounds great. Happy to do it. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll have to have you again sometime. OK, happy to. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. And there we go, folks. Another great episode in the books. Thank you, Coulter, for coming on and sharing all your research with us. A lot of interesting, cool stuff. Really fun to listen to. And we have, speaking of listening to, we have a lot of really good content coming up, guys. I got, uh, I think, two more episodes dropping 
before I head to Nebraska, and then obviously we'll probably do an episode on that. And before long, we're going to be diving headfirst into all of Oklahoma's hunting seasons. And so a lot of good stuff coming up, like I said. Be ready for it. Uh, hit me up on Instagram or email, Facebook, whatever. If you got some episode ideas, maybe you had a, a really cool or fun hunt that you want to share with everybody, hit me up. We'll see if we can get you on. And that is going to do it for this week. So thank you guys once again for all your support. I love all you guys. And until next week, I will see y'all right back here on the Oklahoma Outdoors Podcast. <laughs>